0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glaser.
1: And I'm Will Remus.
0: Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Techs, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, September 4th.
1: And Tuesday, September 4th is the first day of the Senate hearings for Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Today we'll be joined once again by our Slate colleague Mark Joseph Stern to help us make sense of what a Kavanaugh court might mean for the Internet going forward.
0: Then we'll be joined by David Turner, a writer who covers music and technology and does a weekly newsletter about music streaming called Penny Fractions. We'll talk to him about the state of music streaming, how does it work for artists, what are artists doing to push back against the streaming giants like Spotify, Apple, and YouTube, and we'll talk about some of the surprising ways in what streaming is actually changing music itself.
1: And lastly, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we saw on the web this week.
0: Cool. So, Will, how are you doing?
1: I'm fine. I'm in air conditioning on another steamy summer day here in Delaware. How about you?
0: I'm good. I'm in uh, Berkeley, California at the Historic Fantasy Studios, which I believe are actually shuttering in two weeks. So a little bummed about that, but always happy to be here. Yeah, it's an interesting place. All kinds of like jazz greats and Actually, hip-hop greats and rock greats and recorded here. And Journey. Right. <laughs> but I'm also really excited to jump right into it this week because we will be joined by Slate staff writer Mark Joseph Stern, who this time will be talking to us about Trump's Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, who today is in day one of his nomination hearing in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The hearing so far has been interrupted by protesters, and Democrats have lambasted the entire ordeal for being rushed in part in response to a Monday night document dump of over 42,000 pages of information on Kavanaugh's tenure under George W. Bush's White House. Kavanaugh's views on abortion and the Affordable Care Act have been the subject of most of the conversation about the nominee, but Kavanaugh also has a history in internet policy issues like surveillance and network neutrality. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. And you're with us from Washington, D.C. today, right?
2: Yes, that's right. I'm here from Washington. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So let's start with net neutrality. Now that the net neutrality rules are repealed and groups have filed their challenges against the FCC's removal of the open Internet protections, could this filter up to the Supreme Court? We know that Kavanaugh does believe that uh, that net neutrality actually infringes on the free speech rights of Internet
2: providers. So not right now because those rules have been repealed. Uh, as you know, this was being heavily litigated uh, before Trump's FCC came in and reversed those rules. Uh, but now that they are gone, there's no real controversy for the Supreme Court to decide. Um, so that case is probably dead. However, I am an optimist, and so I like to believe that eventually uh, an open internet will return to the United States, and perhaps a a future uh, FCC or maybe even a future Congress will expressly uh, mandate net neutrality, at which point this issue will once again uh, come before the courts and will, I think, fairly likely wind up at the Supreme Court. Uh, and at that point, Brett Kavanaugh's views on net neutrality are going to be highly pertinent um, because he may hold the fifth vote one way or the other, uh, upholding a future law or regulation. Um, that requires all Internet service providers to maintain uh, an open Internet.
1: All right. So in April's very pointed introduction uh, to this segment, she talked about how Brett Kavanaugh seems to prioritize the free speech rights of corporations over the interests of the hundreds of millions of people who use the internet. Um, That sounds really bad. Is there, can you help us understand where is Kavanaugh coming from? What is the worldview that informs this thinking on net neutrality where uh, he seems to be more concerned about the service provider's right to throttle content than about the, the open internet or people's right to publish stuff on the internet?
2: Right. So a cynic would just say that um, Kavanaugh values corporations and corporate rights over the rights of individuals and consumers. Um, a more generous reading is that Kavanaugh takes really seriously uh, a series of precedents that I think are very good and correct Um, in which the Supreme Court limited Congress's ability um, to regulate cable companies. So this is pretty much forgotten because it was the 90s and it was a crazy time, but Congress tried to censor uh, cable channels, channels like uh, Playboy, uh, to prevent them from uh, airing their content, the sexually explicit content, for instance, uh, at certain times of the day. Uh, And the Supreme Court wound up striking down a lot of those rules, um, holding, I think, quite correctly, that they were a violation of free expression. Uh, And so Kavanaugh read those cases and derived from them this principle that Internet service providers similarly have a right to throttle certain websites and certain content uh, to limit uh, consumers' uh, access to them, just like cable companies have have a right to air whatever content they want at whatever time they want. Now, I think that is an incredibly silly reading of these precedents um, and of just basic free speech principles uh, because... To begin, you know, what these Internet service providers are doing is not uh, a sort of exercise in freedom of expression. Uh, It is simply market manipulation. And what the government is trying to do by mandating an open Internet is not to suppress ideas or speech, um, but to allow all consumers to have equal access to other people's ideas and speech. And so it's almost kind of a reversal of the situation that was going on in the 90s with cable companies. Uh, But Kavanaugh didn't see it that way, uh, and so he did dissent from a really big opinion in the D.C. Circuit uh, upholding the Obama-era open internet rules. Uh, And so that is the kind of conviction that will uh, outlast the Trump administration, because Kavanaugh will be on the court for many, many years and decades, uh, and could wind up being a major point of contention, because as I said, if a future administration or Congress tries to bring back net neutrality, they're going to have to try to convince uh, a future Justice Kavanaugh uh, that it is constitutional to require Internet service providers to sort of rule with an even hand uh, and to prevent them from throttling content uh, or websites that they don't want us to have access to.
1: Mark, this is one of my favorite things about your coverage, by the way, is that you can sympathetically articulate an opposing point of view right before demolishing it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, you know, I I had to read that Kavanaugh dissent very carefully because I really do think those precedents are correct. You know, the government should not be telling the Playboy channel that it's not allowed to air its content before 10 p.m. I mean, its content is garbage, but we have free speech in this country. And if that means anything, it means that uh, legislators don't get to say Playboy bunnies aren't allowed on the TV. Uh, But the Internet is just a very different beast. And these regulations are, are content neutral. They're viewpoint neutral. They involve a different kind of expression and they're targeting, uh, you know, a different kind of dissemination of expression. And so I I think there is a a very stark divide between those two lines of cases and I'm uh, disturbed that Kavanaugh does not see it that way as well.
0: Right. I mean, deciding how to transmit ESPN is is so different than an internet provider blocking a website or whole portions of websites, right? Because cable providers' whole service is to offer a set of channels, while internet providers kind of have this ever-growing, morphing, sprawling internet to account for, right? So blocking or limiting parts of that isn't the same as kind of dictating how one channel works.
2: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I would add that uh, there's a difference between Congress saying, look, you have to treat all websites equally. You don't get to limit or block access to certain websites uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and Congress coming in and saying, oh, well, if you're disseminating a certain kind of expression, we are going to limit your ability to do that because we don't like it. You know, the latter example is clearly sort of content-based suppression of speech, and we really don't do that in this country. Uh, But the former example seems, again, to be a kind of even-handed, neutral way to guarantee the rest of us uh, open access to speech. And that would seem to me to be a good thing and actually sort of further the goals of free expression that are embedded in the Constitution.
1: Kavanaugh has also written in support of the NSA's Digital Mass Surveillance Program's and in a 2015 opinion, he said that the critical security need outweighs the impact on privacy of the program. I know this because I read it in a piece that you wrote, April. <laughs> um, but what is you know? Do you see a court with Kavanaugh uh, being more permissive in terms of allowing digital surveillance? Uh, and why does why does the sort of conservative Um, emphasis on individual rights not seem to encompass uh, rights to privacy.
2: That is a tricky question um, because, you know, the Supreme Court just issued in June a blockbuster decision uh, upholding a right to digital privacy in the Carpenter case uh, in which it held that the government needs a warrant in order to access uh, information about where your cell phone has been over the last weeks or months or years. That was a five to four decision with uh, Chief Justice John Roberts joining the liberal justices, and that is a five justice block uh, that isn't going anywhere. Right, Those justices will still be on the court. Uh, it's Justice Kennedy who stepped down, uh, and he had dissented in that case. So at worst, Kavanaugh will probably maintain the status quo on digital privacy. Uh, but what I think that opinion and a few others uh, illustrate is that Kavanaugh does not have the somewhat libertarian bent of many judicial conservatives today. Uh, there is a big divide among uh, Trump's appointees to the bench uh, about the ability of law enforcement and the government to access your records and information in private spaces. Uh, and some justices, including I think Justice Gorsuch, uh, Trump's first Supreme Court appointee, are fairly sympathetic uh, to the notion that the government should not be able to just barge in and collect all kinds of data on on you uh, without your knowledge and without a warrant, uh, and Kavanaugh does not seem to be concerned about these mass surveillance programs. He does not seem sympathetic to the rather libertarian idea that our data is, in a sense, our property, uh, and so the government should not be able to seize it uh, without some kind of uh, formal judicial authorization. Unfortunately, he seems to take the kind of standard Republican approach. Uh, to data privacy, which is if the government and law enforcement say they want it and they need it, we just have to defer to them, and we should not be second-guessing their choices. Uh, I think that's really unfortunate, and I think there could be room for Kavanaugh to evolve there. Chief Justice Roberts certainly evolved. He was not great on data privacy in a few earlier cases, but he really came around in these cases involving cell phone searches and, and cell phone location information. So Kavanaugh could grow, And there seems to be a kind of consensus, uh, at least among five justices on the court, that we need to take digital privacy seriously. But from his track record so far, it does not look like Kavanaugh is going to be a stable vote uh, in favor of data privacy.
0: Mark, thanks so much for joining us. It's always great to have you on.
2: Always a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with David Turner to talk about the state of music streaming today.
2: Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. David Turner is
0: a Brooklyn-based freelance writer who covers music and technology. He writes a weekly newsletter about the business of music streaming called Penny Fractions, which I recommend. His work has appeared in Rolling Stone, Jezebel, and Esquire, and he used to be a staff writer with MTV News and Gizmodo. He joins us today from Slate in Brooklyn. Hi, David. Thanks so much for coming on If
3: Then. I want to say thank you very much for inviting me on today.
0: So I want to start out with kind of some definitions as I like to and I feel like, you know, I know how streaming works from my consumer perspective, which is I pay Spotify and Apple, you know, between 10 and 15 a month and then I have complete access to their expansive and growing music libraries. But from the artist perspective, it's a little gray. And I was wondering if you could kind of start by walking us through what it means for artists because it seems like it means people aren't buying albums anymore. They're just waiting till they show up on Spotify.
3: Yeah, so most music fans at this point are not buying albums anymore and sort of the way that artists end up getting paid it, through this system is that that $10 subscription that you might have to Apple Music or Spotify around 30% of that goes to goes to either company then 70% of that ends up sort of being directed towards the mu- towards the music labels and then this is where things kind of get fairly complicated fairly quickly because m- depending on the record label like the record label deal that you signed or the, w- whether it was it independent label or a major label you'll end up getting a smaller or maybe a bigger chunk of the overall money that you potentially make per stream so if you sign to an end if you sign to like a major label the chances is for every stream you get you're probably getting like maybe 12 or 15 percent from that if you're an artist where for a lot of indie acts they are usually can get like 50 percent royalties which is a significantly better deal than what you would get on a major but obviously the trade-offs are are sort of the traditional trade-off between indies and majors of promotion marketing and all that and all that kind of stuff this is for major i mean this is for like artists we're not talking about like producers or engineers or people like that who end up getting even smaller chunks of that of that of that pie
0: and when we say per stream what do you mean like how much do is paid per stream
3: so that ends up varying per per service so uh platform like apple music i think right now pays like 0. 0.0007 cents per individual stream spotify i think it's reported to be about half of that title is title jay-z's like jay-z's own streaming service pays out significantly more than than either one of those but it's still essentially fractions of pennies which is sort of the, got the name of my newsletter penny fractions and in something like youtube which is one of the biggest music streaming services even though it's not one of the more traditionally defined ones pays even less because all of the money that ends up being revenue from, it ends up being generated from YouTube comes from the overall advertising pool of YouTube and not simply just the music side of
1: it so if i heard your math correctly that means that if i'm an artist on Spotify somebody has to stream my song 10,000 times for me to make like a dollar
3: uh, around that, it's, not, it's probably, I think, a little bit less stream than 10,000, but it requires thousands upon thousands of millions of streams to essentially start making a decent income, which is one of the reasons why this particular model is beneficial towards labels not because that not because they don't wish they could make more per stream but because they have massive catalogs of music that are constantly being streamed be it in 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 record stores and coffee shops just sort of like even in your own workplaces like they have such a large back catalog of music that it's always constantly being streamed that the individual streams are not a concern for them because they have so much catalog they can that it's just always being used
0: So this means that instead of somebody buying an album and that money going to the artist, they depend on the streams. But it seems that the music itself as a commodity has become less valuable with streaming.
3: Yeah, so instead of there being a a physical product that you can buy, there's essentially there's essentially nothing that you can buy for some artists. So like most recently, the the example that I've been going back to recently is Future put on an album called the rapper the Atlanta rapper Future put on an album called Beast Mode Two, and there was no physical version of the album, and there was no digital version. It was only for streaming. So for myself, as a person who still likes to have MP3s, I end up having to find through illicit means, a version of the album that just didn't exist through it in any other form.
0: And so artists are touring more now. That's really kind of how they're making money more rather than kind of making this beautiful product and resting on that as much yeah. as they
3: used to. Yeah, so instead of just sort of like going through the traditional two-year two, two year album cycle of putting on an album, touring for a little bit, and then just sort of re- taking a little bit of a break, then go, getting back in the studio and then sort of performing that for like 10 to 20 years, it is now that artists will put out an album and they'll just keep, touring constantly touring so for rappers like a rapper like Lil Baby who's from another rapper from Atlanta over the last year and a half has put out I think like four or five mixtapes which is a pretty high clip to consistently be putting out music and then you'll get sort of different examples of an artist like Drake who's like one of the biggest pop artists in the world and he's put on an album consistently year over year over year and it's like he has to sort of keep doing that to sort of remain in the conversation and also to sort of buttress the giant, massive tours he's going to be going on where he's going stadium to stadium to stadium.
0: Bringing up Drake is a, is a is a good segue because the albums that that artists are putting out are different now. You know, it's not just that people aren't buying albums and that they're streaming them, but the albums are being um, kind of refashioned to uh, to optimize for streaming services, right? So I think uh, Migos' Culture 2 is a good example of this. Drake's recent album, Scorpion, I think, what, 25 tracks, something like that? Can you speak to how streaming services is actually morphing the way artists are trying to adapt to how their music is getting out?
3: Yeah. So those are are two great examples of, of the sort of more recent phenomenon in the last couple of years is that now that streaming has sort of like become the main way of revenue for the music industry overall is that albums are becoming longer and they're becoming longer in sort of twofold and where on one end they're becoming longer purely by just the number of songs on it as you mentioned Drake's album had 25 songs Migos Culture 2 had I think almost 30 songs and then another album from early from late last year that was from Migos same label had 30 songs on it which is less so an album that is sort of a playlist slash collection of tracks that I don't honestly feel that even if you were to talk those artists I don't think they would say that you are meant to listen to it all the way through it's just sort of a collection of songs that can get the most streams eventually but one of the other reverse ends of this is that songs there is a last year there was a Florida based rapper named Lil Pump who had a really big song called Gucci Gang which was like under two minutes long and that two minute long and that two minute long song fits in with a trend across different a particular platform called SoundCloud where a lot of rappers are sort of are sort of coming up, coming up nowadays. And a lot of their songs are like minute and a half, two minutes, two and a half minutes of just like hook verse hook. And that ends up being sort of the way that people are producing music now, where the idea is like, you are constantly just find, clicking play on a new song constantly because you aren't buying it. And the only way they get money is for each play, additional play that you give to the song.
1: So in the fifties and sixties you had uh act putting out singles all the time and you had to you had to craft like this perfect little pop gem that people would buy as a single record. Then in the 70s and the 80s you got LPs and bands stretching out with these concept albums that are meant to be listened to from front to to, to back in one sitting. It sounds like from what you're saying, the idea of the cohesive album is eroding. Maybe there's some renewed emphasis on singles. How else has streaming changed sort of the the structure of songs and, and the focus of artists in terms of what type of song or what type of album gets rewarded? So one of the ways
3: that I, th- I, th- I think you actually made a very good point, which is that one of the things that's changed with music is as technology changes, music also always changes alongside it, which I think is something that sometimes gets lost when talking about the sort of impact of streaming on music right now is, is as you said earlier is that, Singles in the 50s and the 60s were actually around this sort of like incredibly short, two and a half minute, three minute length. And then as albums came up, which was not because art. I mean, certain certain artists wanted to make longer albums and, and more, make more thoughtful albums. But for a lot of it, it was just sort of an economic reason that labels made more money when they sold albums versus when they sold singles. Which is also why during that time period, they tried to reduce the number of singles that were being produced, so you could just have more albums, pure albums being sold. So at that sort of happening in in today's marketplace, one of the things is you you see are longer albums, you see shorter songs, but I also think that it depends by genre. So I think a genre that I follow a lot is like indie rock. Indie rock is one of the ones that is not done as well in the streaming era, but still produces solid 10, 12-song albums because their audience actually still wants to buy vinyl and buy CDs and buy and like sort of even buy MP3s on sites like Bandcamp. And I think that's one of the things that not doesn't get lost but something that is to consider is that like streaming has is affecting different artists in different ways but it's more broadly that technology informs how artists create their music and so you can sort of see through different genres how technology is affecting or maybe is not quite so affecting how how they're going about their work
1: yeah and i guess now that you mentioned it it makes sense that hip-hop artists seem to be on the forefront of gaming the algorithm, so to speak, because streaming is more important to their business than maybe other genres. Um, But uh, there's another thing that I've read about recently in terms of an artifact of the way these streaming platforms work, which is this idea of fake artists. Can you say, tell us what's a fake artist? (laughs)
3: Yeah, so last year there ended up being sort of a like hum- a, 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 a humorous controversy that ended up sort of happening with Spotify, where this where the website Music Business Worldwide reported that there was a number of artists on on, on particular Spotify playlists, particularly their mood playlists. If you were to go to the Spotify app and open it up, playlists like sleep, um, like ch- deep chill, and the ones that most of the ones that have chill in the name, where the chill
0: a, is fake, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> no such thing. Okay,
3: <laughs> and so what it ended up so what ended up happening is that they ended up reporting that there were all these like fake like fake quote unquote fake artists, which essentially ended up being revealed through reporting at music business online, B- music business worldwide, and a number of other outlets that these were artists that were session musicians, most of them based in Sweden, that were just sort of producing music for Spotify's playlist that. Was never exactly the reporting never bore out the exact connection between Spotify and the company making the music, but it ended up having this sort of unnerving effect in the industry that there was a concern that Spotify was just not filling their playlist with all of these artists that essentially weren't artists you could ever go see live in concert. You couldn't buy their music, you couldn't become a fan of these artists, but you could just sort of hear their like MIDI tunes or um or let's get a better word phrase would be musak on, on on their playlist, which is something that I personally found was like. I thing I looked up and spent needless hours sort of investigating just because I was so enthralled with it and ended up seeing that this trend ended up happening across dozens, maybe even over 50 different Spotify playlists have these kind of acts just sitting on them. Even in 2018, where if you actually look up an artist like Figgy, Mal- like Figgy Malone, you'll be like, oh, there's no Figgy Malone or Jeff Bright Jr. None of these artists are real, but you can still hear their music on Spotify and they're getting millions of plays and on all, all these top playlists.
0: So I do worry that the power of these platforms is kind of depreciating the value of fandom here, right? Because because the idea is just to consume more music or just to give people what they need or what they demand as, you know, when they demand it type of thing. Uh, you know, and that kind of brings into question the power of these platforms because we're we're really talking about here two, maybe three if you want to count title. And, you know, I've subscribed to title, so I would. <laughs> but uh, they they just have a tremendous Amount of power to strong arm artists to kind of do whatever they want, right? Because if you're not on, on Spotify, you're not on Apple Music, then it's really kind of hard to exist unless you're a big enough name like Beyonce.
3: Yeah, well, I think that's sort of an interesting... And this is an interesting issue that I think almost sometimes extends beyond music and just sort of to platforms sure. overall, where it depends on what, who is the audience you're trying to reach, and how are you trying to reach that audience. So there are tons of artists that I follow that are exclusively only put out their music on Bandcamp or SoundCloud. That I could go to go to a concert and they sell out five, six hundred, like six hundred seat venues, and True, their actually, music yes. might be on Spotify, it might be on Apple Music, but the, pr- the primary form of engagement is through Bandcamp or SoundCloud. And I think that's something that is actually I think something that should be mm encouraged and exactly kind of exciting about this moment is that while these other platforms are so massive if you do not want to work in those spaces you do have the option to not work in them it's just that when you don't work in them you are correct that you lose massive audiences and you lose so much poten- so many potential people that could hear your music but i think one of the things that for like an apple music or spotify it's sort of i also i think about it a little bit in reverse is that the issue with those platforms isn't that apple or spotify have all the power is that the major labels have. Have all the power in this dynamic because the early investors in spotify are the major labels which is why almost all spotify playlists have like an allotted amount of, spa- of space that is dedicated only to major labels so if you're a truly independent artist your chances of getting on some of the top spotify playlists are essentially your chance the same as your chances of getting into radio none you're not gonna it's not gonna happen
0: and we see the same type of consolidation like for example with the news media to the major platforms so you know when we see facebook uh deciding what what news outlets is going to you know count as news they're the majors right and so that that immediately kind of um lower ranks, the smaller more indie publications by default. And so consolidation leads to more consolidation.
3: Yes, exactly. And that's sort of and that sort of I guess the sort of counter in that in that example would also be like people who start newsletters who end up just sort of eschew ever trying to be on Facebook or on or on Twitter or those other platforms, but they can still find an audience and reach an audience or podcasting even. It's that hey, I have a you have a podcast, but you might not have an active Twitter account or Facebook page for it, but you're still reaching an audience and finding an audience. It's just that Sometimes it does feel like you're reaching a niche, which is good, but not might not be as sustainable as if you were able to reach a broader audience of people.
0: So uh, a couple more points I want to ask about, you know, while we're talking about power, these platforms also have the power to kick people off. And we saw after Charlottesville, Spotify in particular, took action to remove a number of uh, bands that kind of affiliated with with white nationalist or white supremacist thinking from its platform. Uh, I believe was R. Kelly removed as well.
3: Um, R. Kelly was not removed from Spotify's platform, but he was removed from their from their like playlist. So he would not be promoted on the platform.
0: Right. And so so these uh, these platforms also have the ability to 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 take people off who are perhaps promoting a bad message or to censor them. Do you have any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah. So I think I think this is sort of a double edged sword where I do think that platforms should exercise some amount of control like to step to look outside of music the, the example of alex jones for instance i feel like platforms should have taken years ago removed yes. him from their, their platforms but i do think that in the context of music there's just been such a long history of censorship and throughout the almost the last century of, of american recorded music that usually ends up skewing that censorship happens towards black artists far more than it happens to other uh, other races and other in other genres and so it ends up being that the who are the people that end up getting targeted it's so earlier this summer it was that r kelly and the rappers XSX and tasha young who's pre, who has pre, who was who's recently killed and the rapper take who was accused of, who is right now being accused of murder were removed from spotify's official playlist and on paper i have no issue with those artists being removed the acts that they are accused of doing are reprehensible but it's sort of i don't want to i wouldn't say it's a slippery slope but it's sort of that who is deciding who's making who's deciding what is allowed on the platforms and who is deciding what isn't allowed and why is it that when we start removing things the people that we start removing are the people that are already traditionally going to be the least advantage of those not to say that r kelly is not has not benefited from the music industry the last 30 years but just traditionally going after like exclusively going after like black men in the, in that kind of campaign is sort of i don't know it, it, le- it leaves a bad taste on when i sort of think about it
0: Sure. And thinking just about the history of radio here, we used to have kind of a constellation of owners all over the country where every city had different radio station owners, and then they would decide who was or was not appropriate on their station, which is still like a large level of power. But then when a lot of consolidation happened under Clear Channel, it became kind of one company or cumulus, two companies that could kind of pull those levers. And so again, we're seeing that type of consolidation here. I'm curious what uh, musicians are doing, though, to push back against these platforms. We've been talking about how powerful they are. Are, how they work, how little money is made. Is there any effort now between artists to uh, to to make it work better for them?
3: Oh, that's a great question. So there are artists, I mean, so there are different diff- different ways that some pe- that artists are g- are going about it. Some. Are do, do like what i said earlier which is they like focus primarily on, on platforms like Bandcamp. there's a platform called resonate which is a music cooperative that does that does music streaming and also some forms of music of digital music ownership that i've that i've seen some artists like gravitating towards that i think is very very interesting in terms of like finding a new way to sort of like understand and think about think about this space and i think one of the ways that artists are trying to buck the system is just trying to find other ways to monetize their content one of my favorite anecdotes about this is Lil Yachty when he was pro, like when his manager's profiled in the New Yorker mentioned that he was just on Twitch one day and just like some kid paid him I think like a thousand dollars like fart and he got like a thousand dollars for it which is hilarious and not that's not like a sustainable like uh-huh. revenue model but a thousand dollars that he got on Twitch that day is significantly more than the however number of streams that one person could ever ever try to produce so i think one of the ways that artists can start trying to trying to fight back is just to similar to how people can sort of fight back with social media it's just like disengage a little bit and just start finding other platforms and other ways to connect with their audience that isn't just through these particular platforms so recently, I've read a i have read I just read a book that was about that's from 1953. That was about the history of the American Federation of Music, where they ended up talking about sort of some of the solutions that they found to issues of artists not getting paid, or or artists trying to strugg, struggle 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 through those issues. The reason I want I mentioned that was just because what happened in the 40s was that musicians all striked. Like they all just like they like went on an over a year long strike in on 1942, and one of the things that they ended up winning in that strike was that they were able to collect a percent of the overall music industry's revenue. So by collecting the percent of the revenue, they were able to feed that back into not only those who were stri- who not only to like a strike fund, an overall strike fund for the artists, but ways to to help artists through unemployment, through public works, through like public like through public concerts. And like honestly, that's sort of the the the, be- the best solution to me in my world is that. As the music industry is seeing all this record, now starting to see record profits again, it's that 10, 5% of that just goes directly back into the artist. So even if they aren't getting paid a great amount, at least like they have health care, they have all the other basics that they actually could use.
1: David Turner, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that everybody who listened and enjoyed it will go out and subscribe to your newsletter, Penny Fractions.
0: And be weird on Twitch to make money.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Please be weird on Twitch. And, and thank you guys for having me on today.
0: Thanks so much, David
1: one final quick break and then don't close my tabs some of the most interesting stories we saw online this week It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week?
0: So I actually have two tabs open this week, and one is one that I fully intend to read as soon as I get out of this. It's called How Duterte Used Facebook to Fuel the Philippine Drug War. It's by Davey Alba at BuzzFeed. And, Will, maybe you could uh, sum up a little bit about what it's about because I believe you did get the time.
1: Yeah, it's, it's horrifying and depressing. And it's, it's Alba reports from the Philippines where she says that Facebook has basically become the internet for a lot of people. Uh, it's not just, you know, a place you go on the internet. It is the internet. And she talks about how... Uh, conspiracy theories and propaganda have flourished on Facebook there, how critics of Duterte have been smeared in horrible ways, and how those Facebook smears have actually paved the way for political imprisonments. Uh, It's just, if you want to believe that Facebook can be a force for good, this is not the story for you to read because it's just really dispiriting.
0: So I, I really look forward to reading it, though, because it's very important reporting and Davy Alba is just a fantastic journalist at BuzzFeed. But the tab that I want to bring up that I did get a chance to finish was a shorter piece by Michael Schulman in The New Yorker. And it's entitled The Shaming of Jeffrey Owens and the Inability to See Actors as Laborers Too. And it is about Jeffrey Owens, who was uh, from The Cosby Show, where he played a character named Elvin. Uh, and he used to teach um, at Yale and uh, has been a stage actor and has other had, had other TV show appearances. He uh, was apparently photographed uh, bagging groceries at Trader Joe's. And that, you know, let off kind of a, a cascade of events on social media where uh, where I guess Fox News was shaming Owens. Right. For for doing this kind of job at Trader Joe's. Uh, and then other people fired back at Fox News saying, don't shame someone for having a job. And the piece just really gets to uh, how people understand actors and and people who work in the creative industry as, you know, needing to support themselves, right? So you would think that just because somebody's on TV or they get a lot of press that they're doing quite well and that, you know, they're probably millionaires. And while that might be true in some cases, it's clearly not true in everyone's case. There was this great line from the piece that I I really recommend people reading to understand kind of – a lot of the nuances and in in creative labor. And that line was by undervaluing the labor of creative professionals. We put artists in a double bind. Their artistic work is seen as work. But it's also assumed to be so lucrative that any non-acting job they might pursue is suspect. Right. And so, you know, immediately there must be something wrong with Jeffrey Owens because, you know, he has a a side job. And um, it just really struck out to me because uh, I used to run uh different music venues and uh artist spaces and gallery spaces in Philadelphia and Nashville, and you know people assumed that because we got a lot of press that we were doing just fine, but we could really never <laughs> afford to keep the electricity on most weeks, right? I mean, we barely did, or we were, you know, using our own money to do that. And uh, and I just thought that this piece really did a fantastic job of of kind of summing up the, the assumptions that go with, with being an artist, particularly if you're able to get some press or if you're able to reach a level of fame and the actual financial realities of that.
1: All right, a good story to read on Labor Day.
0: And Will, what tab could you not close this week?
1: Mine was an interactive from the New York Times, and the headline was, How much hotter is your hometown than when you were born? I liked this because the story of climate change is really, it's like infamously hard to tell. Uh, it, through conventional journalistic means. Uh, and when you t- even when you delve into statistics, you're talking about shifts in global averages that are on the order of one, two, three, five degrees. It's just hard for people to wrap their head around. The Times did a great job, I thought, of personalizing this story. You plug in your hometown and the year you were born, and it will tell you how many 90-degree days would you have in an average year back when you were born in that city, And how many 90-degree days a year do you get now in that same city? And then based on the latest projections, how many 90-degree days is that city likely to see by the time you're 80 years old? So I did this both for for my original hometown of Columbus, Ohio, and my new adopted hometown of Newark, Delaware. In both cases, already those cities are seeing 50% more 90-degree days per year than they were when I was born. And that's going to at least double, if not more, by the time I am 80. So you can just see, you can just imagine, I think, more viscerally than than I have been able to from other stories, the sweltering summers, the day after day of 90, 95, 100, in places that didn't used to be tropical or subtropical.
0: That's uh, fascinating. And I just wonder how it clocks in for places like in Arizona where it's pretty common to have over 90 degrees. But I, I think in a lot of places, it's just incredibly high. Um, so that's I, I look forward to, to looking into that. I, I missed it, but I did see the, the link floating around on my socials.
1: Yeah, so the change is actually a little less dramatic for a place like Phoenix, where being above 90 is the norm. It says that when I was born in 1982, they would get 156 days a year above 90. Right. By the time I'm 80, it'll be 176. So it's, it's not the dramatic change there. It's actually better, I think, at illustrating some of the temperate climates and, and what life will be like there in the future.
0: Well, it's something I definitely need to check out. And that does it for our show this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod.
1: You can also email us at ifthenatslate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi, and I know we've promised a couple times to do an episode where we read some of your best questions and comments on air and respond to them. That's still going to happen. We promise, uh, and we'll get there soon.
0: Yes, later this year uh, or this month, I think actually. But you can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will
1: Waremus. Thanks again to our guest David Turner. You can find him on Twitter at underscore David Turner underscore just in case you wanted some more underscores. You can also follow our other guest, Mark Joseph Stern on Twitter. He is at MJS DC.
0: Underscores And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your
1: time. Yes, I want to underscore how much we appreciate it. (laughs) If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music is by Doug Chase.
0: Thanks to Cody Hamilton at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley for recording me today.
1: And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.
0: Bye, y'all.